This is the Festival of the Mind podcast from the University of Sheffield. This episode sees Emma Moore, Professor of Sociolinguistics, talk about the use and usefulness of non-standard grammar in the English language. What do you think about when you hear someone speak? Do you get a picture of them in your head? Do you wonder where they are or what they might be doing? My name is Emma Moore and I'm a Professor of Sociolinguistics at the University of Sheffield. If you've never come across Sociolinguistics before, it's a branch of language study which considers the relationship between language and the social world. One area of Sociolinguistics considers how other people evaluate us or make assumptions about the type of person we are just by listening to our speech. So I've told you I'm a professor, but what else are you wondering about me? Perhaps you're thinking about where I'm from or how old I am. But we don't just try to decode information about a speaker's background when we hear them speak. We also use the structure of speech to try to figure out more subtle details. For instance, do you think I sound knowledgeable or suitably qualified to be talking to you about how we use language? In this podcast, we'll be specifically thinking about how we evaluate the way other people form words and sentences, and more specifically, what happens when people use grammar that's considered to be non-standard. Now, you might know that your dialect is considered to be markedly local. Perhaps you've been told that you use bad grammar. Or maybe you think you never form words and sentences in a non-standard way. At this point, it's probably helpful for me to be clear about what I mean by non-standard. Even though many people negatively evaluate non-standard dialects, non-standard is not the same as substandard. Now, when we want to differentiate between different ways of using language, the variety most often used as a reference point is the standard. And in Britain, standard English is the variety that we are taught to write in, and it's also encouraged more generally in educational settings. In speech, it's most closely approximated by the speech of people higher up the social hierarchy. You will sometimes hear it being referred to as the Queen's English. However, most people in Britain actually speak in a non-standard variety of English. A non-standard variety is any structured language variety that differs from the standard of the same language. By structured, what I mean here is that there are grammatical rules about when certain non-standard constructions can be used. They aren't just mistakes. Let me give you an example. Imagine that you want to make the following sentence negative. I'm going to say something. Now, in standard English, you have basically two options. You could insert the negative marker not and make it I'm not going to say anything. Or you could make the word something negative by changing it to nothing. So I'm going to say nothing. In many varieties of English, you can do both of these options at the same time and say I'm not going to say nothing. However, there are rules about precisely what aspects of the sentence is negated. In no variety of English do we find people saying things like I not am going to say something, or I'm nothing going to say. Even non-standard dialects have structural rules about what is and what is not allowed. It's simply not the case that anything goes in how people construct words and sentences, even if their speech differs from standard English. Now that said, we all have views about some types of language being better or nicer than others. Have you ever wanted to change how you speak? If you have a non-standard dialect, has anyone ever suggested to you that you should try and speak differently? The need to remove non-standard English from our speech is even implied in some educational policy documents. For instance, the National Curriculum for English in England 
emphasises the need to use standard English in writing, quite rightly of course, because our written system in English is standard English. But there are also hints that we should be using standard English in our speech too. For example, the spoken language component of the national curriculum suggests that pupils should use standard English confidently in a range of formal and informal contexts, including classroom discussion. The suggestion here is that standard English is the most appropriate form to use in a wide range of spoken interactions. But whilst it might be natural for some people to use standard English in informal situations, why should we expect everyone to use it? If you regularly ask your housemate if she fancies a brew, you might get a strange response if you suddenly started asking her if she desired a cup of tea. Non-standard language gets everywhere and can help to structure important relationships with our family and friends. Although non-standard grammar clearly provokes strong and often negative reactions, is it really fair to ask children to remove it from their speech? One justification might be that it needs removing because it makes learning written standard English harder. But in 2017, academics Julia Snell and Richard Andrews investigated this and found that there was no real evidence that this was the case. This is because even if we speak standard English, writing is a different skill, with its own norms of spelling and punctuation, which need to be mastered by everyone, irrespective of how they usually speak. So instead of focusing on how non-standard grammar is a bad thing, in this podcast, I want to focus on how it might actually have positive benefits, not just for the people who most typically use it, but for society at large. So in the rest of the podcast, I'll provide some evidence to suggest that non-standard grammar is actually very useful to all of us, and this utility makes attempts to remove it from our speech both difficult and counterproductive. But how am I going to do this? Well, I'm going to narrow our gaze to think about one specific type of non-standard grammatical construction. It's the one I mentioned earlier, where two negative markers can be used instead of one in utterances like, I'm not going to say nothing. This type of construction is known as negative concord, or you might have heard it being called multiple negation or double negatives. Years of social linguistic research tell us that negative concord is most frequently found in the speech of lower social classes. Studies which look more closely at how groups of children use this form have found that it is also used more frequently by social groups that are characterised as delinquent or anti-school. Given these patterns of use, it's perhaps unsurprising that negative concord is frowned upon. But that doesn't stop people using it. In the 2019 series of Love Island, negative concord occurred in a short interaction in which the eventual winner, Amber Gill, was being dumped by another contestant, Michael. After an awkward confrontation in which Michael accused Amber of being disrespectful about his feelings, Amber paused for a long time and then said, I'm not going to say nothing right now. Let me tell you a bit about Amber if you don't know her. She's from Gateshead and worked in her auntie's salon as a beautician before she appeared on Love Island. Does she fit the profile of someone we might expect to use non-standard grammar? Well, she has a Geordie dialect and her profession, at least the one that she had pre-Love Island, could be considered as working class. She most likely grew up in a community where people around her used a good amount of negative concord. This means that she probably acquired it as she learned to speak. However, Amber doesn't always use negative concord when she could. A quick scan of her TV interviews shows occasions when she could have used an instance of negative concord, but she didn't. 
But perhaps more importantly, it's not just people like Amber who use non-standard grammar. In the same year that Amber used negative concord on Love Island, Michael Gove, a member of the cabinet who was educated at Oxford, gave an interview in which he was asked about the possibility of a second referendum over Brexit. His response to BBC Two presenter Andrew Neil was, there ain't going to be no second referendum. Now, even if you don't follow politics, you'll probably know that this is not how Michael Gove usually speaks. So why does he use this expression? It suggests that there must be something useful about negative concord that worked well in this moment of interaction. Of course, it also shows that whilst people like Amber most commonly use negative concord, it's not exclusively people from low social class groups who use non-standard forms. So if Amber's use of negative concord is variable, and if people like Michael Gove also use negative concord, then we need a better answer to why we use non-standard grammar than just because we acquired it growing up. So what is it about negative concord that makes it useful? And what makes it something that both a Love Island contestant and an MP might use? Also, are these two types of people using negative concord for the same reasons? Getting to the bottom of this requires us to think about what negative concord means. And by meaning, I'm not just referring to the fact that negative concord tells us the sentence is negative. By meaning, I'm referring to how an instance of negative concord allows us to deduce something about a person's attitude or identity. Social meaning, then, is essentially all of the social information we decode when someone uses a construction like negative concord. Of course, what we decode from a speaker's utterance might include something about their social background. But as I mentioned at the beginning, our inferences might be much more nuanced than this, given that language is capable of communicating subtle information about when a person is speaking, what their preferences are, what their alignment is to what they're saying, and what their feelings are about who they are saying it to. So how can we better understand what an instance of negative concord means? To do this, we need to look at more examples of it from a wide range of different people. That is to say, we need more data. Sociolinguists often collect recordings of conversations in order to compare and contrast how different types of people use language. So in my own work, I'm particularly fascinated by how young people speak. And to examine this, I made recordings of girls talking to me and each other in a secondary school. My study was ethnographic. So ethnographies study people in their natural setting and attempt to get an insider's perspective on people's relationships and behaviours. In practice, this meant that over a two-year period, I regularly went into the school, which I'll call Midland High, and I hung about with young people who were aged 13 to 15, and I went in during the lunch break, where I made notes about what I saw in classrooms and on the playground. The school was in Bolton, a northwest English town, and if you're wondering what a Bolton accent sounds like, you've been listening to one. The school was situated in quite an affluent middle-class suburb, but its catchment area extended into more socially disadvantaged areas. This meant that there was a good cross-section of different social classes at Midland High. Can you remember what it felt like to be in school? What it felt like to be amongst the different cliques and groups? How people dressed differently or even walked differently? How some kids loved playing with language, spitting out expressions like weapons? Or how other kids marked their success by talking in ways that teachers approved of? There were four distinct social groups at Midland High and they differed in these ways. At one extreme, there was the most rebellious and anti-school group, the Townies. They wore makeup and gold jewellery and filled the corridors as they walked around the school in groups. 
At the other extreme, there was the elitist and trendy pro-school Eden Village clique. This group of girls all came from the same small village. They had neatly cut long hair, sparkly jewellery, and they were very exclusive. In between these two extremes, there were the cool and independent populace, sort of like a muted, less dangerous version of the townies. And then there were the sensible and studious geeks who boasted about how hard they worked and about never getting detentions or skiving classes. The recordings I collected from these girls showed that the style of a particular social group matched the frequency with which they used negative concord. So Eden Village girls never uttered a single instance of negative concord. Geeks also largely used none, although two girls used it a handful of times. The populars were split between those who never used negative concord and those who used it quite a lot, and the townie's speech was peppered with negative concord. I also saw a correlation between use of negative concord and someone's social class, so there was a very general trend of more working class kids using more negative concord. But this pattern was much less consistent than the pattern by social group. Put simply, social class seemed to affect negative concord use a little, but who a girl hung around with and how she behaved made a much bigger difference. So it's not just upbringing that affects how people use negative concord. This was seen most clearly for the townies. The girls in this group came from a range of social class groups. What made them similar was not their class, but their rebelliousness. So maybe negative concord signals working class a bit and rebelliousness a lot. But it can't be that simple, as townies weren't the only people who used negative concord at Midland High. Why did some geeks and populars use it? Why was negative concord useful to these groups too? And what other things was negative concord allowing these people to articulate? Now linguists are obsessed with how language is structured. How do we add bits of words together and how do we add words to other words to make meaning? Applying this to negative concord, how is this form structured and how might this affect its meaning? Now remember that negative concord has two negative markers. In a sentence like, I didn't do nothing, didn't is negative and so is the word nothing. Now repetition in language is generally used to signal emphasis and to convey evaluation. Compare for instance, this is so true with this is so, so true. So negative concord might be a useful way to add emphasis or intensity to what is being said. It might also be a good strategy for getting someone to pay attention to what is being said or to mark it out as especially interesting or surprising. Can we see this in the Midland High data? In a conversation with me, a townie girl, Amanda, was discussing how teachers treat kids who are in the group considered to have the weakest academic abilities. She told me that they didn't give you DTs or nothing like that. And later in the same conversation, she said, I didn't learn nothing last year. These utterances are both instances of negative concord and they both emphasise surprising information. That is that teachers don't punish disobedient students with detentions and that Amanda didn't learn anything in school, which of course is an environment where we might expect learning to be the main aim. Amanda also told me that kids in this class smoke and talk over the teacher, so she was describing rebellious behaviour, but she was also relating something surprising and also conveying her negative evaluation of the school and its teachers. Could it be that negative concord and rebelliousness go together because rebelliousness is remarkable and negative concord is a good way to express something is remarkable? This might explain why girls use negative concord even when they aren't typically rebellious types. 
For instance, when I asked a geek girl, Jennifer, whether life at school was better now she was in an older year group, she replied by saying, teachers don't treat you no different. In fact, she said that she was still treated in the same way as the younger kids in the school and she was clearly unhappy about it. Jennifer wasn't really talking about rebelliousness here or even being especially rebellious, but she was emphasising surprising information. I'd set up my question in such a way that encouraged her to agree with me that older kids were treated better than younger ones. But she subverted my expectation and she emphasised that life was just the same and she also conveyed her negative evaluation. And she did all of those things at the same time. These examples from Amanda and Jennifer show how one simple utterance can convey lots of meaning. This meaning comes from the structure of the utterance itself, so how the words within it work together to convey emphasis or evaluation. But meaning also comes from the context in which this meaning is typically exploited. So it is helpful to express emphasis or evaluation when talking about surprising or remarkable information, and in particular, when talking about rebellious topics. Finally, some meaning comes from who most often uses these forms and how these people are perceived. At Midland High, negative concord was most often used by the townies and more generally by people in lower class social groups. Consequently, negative concord itself may take on meanings associated with characteristics linked to these social groups. So people using negative concord might sound rebellious, subversive, resilient, straight-talking or tough. The strength of the link between negative concord and the townie and working class groups mean that these characteristics may be called to mind, irrespective of the precise personality of the person uttering the form. We've come a long way from simply thinking that negative concord is the way working class people speak because they can't help it. And we've also armed ourselves with some information that might help us to understand why Love Island contestant Amber Gill uses negative concord on some occasions but not others, and also why MP Michael Gove unexpectedly uses negative concord in a political interview. In the examples we saw from Gill and Gove, they were both trying to project determined, tough, straight-talking and resilient identities. Gill was arguing with her soon-to-be ex, boyfriend Michael, and rejecting his evaluation of her and defending her behaviour. Gove was being challenged in a political interview. Again, he was rejecting something that had been presented to him as obvious and stressing his commitment to there not being a second referendum. These meanings, being emphatic, being tough and being straight-talking, reflect the way we saw negative concord being used by many more people in the middle and high data. Of course, Gove's use of negative concord does not necessarily achieve the desired effect, precisely because we know that he doesn't normally talk like this. So how do our expectations interact with how we evaluate use of non-standard language? Research by Rob Podesta and his colleagues in the US showed that politicians can be evaluated more favourably if they are perceived to sound as expected. So they found in particular that Barack Obama had a tendency not to pronounce his T sounds at the end of words, or if he did pronounce something, it was different from the standard American English T sound. So he said something a bit more like, I get it, rather than I get it. When Podesta and his colleagues tested how people perceived Obama, they found that people perceived him as more intelligent when they heard extracts of his speech in which his T's sounded less standard. That is to say, Obama was perceived more favourably when he used a non-standard English speaking style. 
Podesta and his colleagues explain that this may be because he sounds more like himself and listeners recognise this and respond to it by finding him genuine and sincere. This perception overrides the usual stereotypes about non-standard language because Obama is well known and whatever people think of his politics, he's generally considered to be educated and intelligent. This shows that we might know the stereotypes about which types of language sound uneducated or friendly, but our view can be modified when we actually get to know the person behind the voice. The significance of Obama sounding like himself helps explain the negative reactions to a politician like Gove using negative concord, and there were lots of negative reactions. Social media went mad criticising his use of this form. These responses reflect the feeling that he sounded insincere because he didn't sound like himself. Does the importance of sounding like yourself have any implications for policy, which encourages those who speak with a non-standard dialect to change how they talk? So the risk here is that anyone changing how they speak might be negatively evaluated for not sounding like themselves. And of course, it's also important to think about how people might feel about changing how they speak. Most people feel uncomfortable not speaking like themselves. And does this have educational implications too? Lots of research shows that working class children do less well at school than children from higher social class groups. Now, the reasons for this are really complex, but one possible factor is negative attitudes towards the kind of non-standard language that working class kids are more likely to use. We know that pupils learn best when they're engaged in the classroom and when they are actively contributing to class discussion. But we also know that criticising how someone speaks makes them insecure and less likely to contribute to classroom discussion. So criticisms of young people's dialects can create a vicious cycle of disadvantage. This in itself is a good reason not to attempt to make young people to change how they speak. But we've also seen that using non-standard grammar can help us to communicate more nuanced messages about the content of what we say. For instance, that we're trying to be emphatic, determined or tough when we use an instance of negative concord. We've also seen that this can be useful to all kinds of speakers, irrespective of what their normal speaking style may be. Of course, it is clearly the case that non-standard grammar occurs more frequently in some people's speech than others. And we could just say that people like Amber Gill from Love Island, they just use negative concord because they acquired it growing up and they can't help it. But this ignores the complex work that negative concord does. There are occasions when people like Amber don't use negative concord when they could, and there are examples of people from outside the working class using negative concord too. How can we think about non-standard grammar differently? Rather than seeing it as a hindrance to good communication, we might instead think about it as offering opportunities to communicate a wider range of social meanings than might be possible without it. I mentioned right at the beginning that the national curriculum in English does not encourage the use of non-standard English in speech, Yet it does say that young people should communicate clearly, effectively and imaginatively, selecting and adapting tone, style and register for different forms, purposes and audiences. So if non-standard English has an important role to play in effective and efficient communication, removing non-standard English from speech might actually have the detrimental effect of reducing language creativity and function. If our aim is to communicate effectively, then just like Michael Gove, we should be using all of the linguistic resources at our disposal. Are there any other reasons to remove non-standard English from our speech that we haven't considered? Sadly, there is one more, and it's a biggie. 
It's people's attitudes towards it and the discrimination that might be experienced as a result of these attitudes. There is lots of research showing this discrimination. There's some up-to-date on the Accent Bias in Britain website if you want to look at it. If I persuaded you that non-standard grammar is useful and that the only real problem with it is attitudes towards it, then there's actually responsibility on all of us to try and remove the prejudices we might have when we hear non-standard grammar. That's a huge challenge. But can we address that challenge? Well, one way is to recognise where our stereotypes influence us. That is to say, where they affect how we associate utterances with certain types of people and certain situations. We all have prejudices. They're inevitable because of individual life experiences. But we can reduce the damage they cause by recognising them for what they are. The online game linked to this podcast is an attempt to expose the stereotypes we all have about language, its users and its social meanings. You can play the game to see the extent to which you're affected by stereotypes. There's full feedback on your answers and a chance to explore why certain utterances are used and why they provoke stereotypes. Hopefully you'll find the game fun. After all, language variation is everywhere and as well as being a useful social tool, its richness can be fascinating. But hopefully you will also think more about how you judge the language people use. And maybe some of you will be pleasantly surprised to see language you use yourselves being recognised as interesting and worthwhile. I really hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope you enjoy the game. Do get in touch if you have any questions or comments. I'm always interested in hearing what people have to say, whatever variety of language they say it in. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe. We'll be publishing episodes every day of the festival. We'd love to hear your thoughts and responses on social media. Find us on Twitter at Festival Mind and at facebook.com forward slash Festival of the Mind. (laughs) 